You may be seated. As the kiddos make their way downstairs. Well, we have had a, a year's worth of weather in a week, hadn't we? I mean, if you don't like the weather, just wait a few minutes uh, around here. Thank you guys for kind of punching through the fog. Um, and that, I mean that literally and figuratively um, to, to get here this morning. Um, Beth, thank you and the team for leading us in worship. Uh, we're going to be stepping into a new series today. Um, it's a series entitled Body Language, as you can see um, behind me. And it's a series that is going to last for 12 weeks. Um, we're going to be walking through the book uh, or the letter, if you will, uh, by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians um, over the next 12 weeks. And, I'm, uh, boy, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I will be literally walking verse by verse through this book. So if you're here for all 12 weeks, you will actually hear me read the entire book uh, of 1 Corinthians. And so um, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me there now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians, guess what? You've gone too far. That's right. Uh, I hope that, uh, and, and from what I've seen, uh, most of you have connected to a small group uh, for this season. Uh, we will have small groups running alongside this series that will be meeting in neighborhoods and in homes. And then we have a group that meets here on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. downstairs in Classroom 7. So if you're not connected and would like to get connected, that's a great spot to do it. I know Tom and Molly Bethune would love to have you join them and their group starts next Sunday. Um, those of you who have joined a group, look for communication from your leaders this week as far as confirmation of what time and all the details of when you'll be meeting. Uh, let me ask you something. Has anybody ever studied the science of body language? The science of body language or done any reading on body language? I mean, a lot of you maybe, you know, in management or leadership and that kind of thing um, have probably uh, done some training or seen some uh, aspects of, of body language, but it is absolutely fascinating. I went back this week and and kind of uh, refreshed myself on on the science uh, of body language. It's, it's sort of these nonverbal signals that we constantly send without even realizing that we're sending them. Whether we're leaning into or away from someone when they're talking, a conversation or whether we're making eye contact as we speak to somebody, or whether we're looking away in a disinterested way. Um, crossing our arms is kind of a sign that we're not interested. Okay, so, Robert, appreciate that, brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, closing our eyes when someone is preaching is never, you know, unless you're worshiping, is never a good sign. So body language... You know, raising our eyebrows, kind of questioning or surprise, pursing our lips in disapproval. All these are called micro-expressions. And they all have meaning. 
specific meaning. We don't even realize when we're doing it. Now you're all kind of aware of it, aren't you? Like, where am I putting my hands? What am I doing? Am I... <coughs> but, but they send messages. Um, and when you study this stuff, you begin to look for it, okay? And sometimes it can be a little bit discouraging when you're preaching to a crowd. But uh, I figured out one thing. This week, one of the best places to study body language is during the State of the Union address. Okay, and this is not partisan one way or the other. You know, I I don't go there. Okay, I don't care whose party is in power. You've got an hour of somebody speaking and then the vice president and the speaker of the house sitting behind them, not saying a word. And it's just all about body language. It's either, you know, the smugness of, you know, we, we've got this, this is right, or signs of disapproval. And it, it is fascinating to watch uh, that play out um, at the State of the Union address. Without saying a word, their body language can communicate more in that hour than the speech itself. Our body language can betray us by sending signals we don't realize we're sending. And the same is true for the body of Christ, for the church. The way we treat one another sends a message. The way we respond and react to the world around us sends a message. The way we behave. The way we live our lives beyond these walls sends a message. The church is constantly sending signals about who we are and what we believe. And that body language ultimately reflects on the Savior we serve. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, about 54 A.D., so so just some 21 years after Jesus had walked the earth. And so Jesus' living physical presence on the earth is still fresh at this time. And he's addressing the body language of the Corinthians, the body language of the church in Corinth. Uh, Paul had founded this church on his second missionary journey. Remember, Paul is the apostle to the what? Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and he, he had founded this church just three years prior to writing this letter. And he's concerned now about the signals that they're sending to the world around them. Paul is, is writing this letter from Ephesus. He is in Ephesus at this particular time. And he opens the letter with these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, introducing himself, called to be an apostle. This is who I am, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So it's thought that Sosthenes was the leader of the synagogue in Ephesus. So he was with him at the time of, of this writing. So he says, to the church of God in Corinth, this is who he's writing to, to those 
sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And so there's this unity language here that Paul is using together everywhere who call on the name, their Lord, our Lord. We're all in this thing together, essentially, is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you, Paul says, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all of your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. See if you see something that is redundant through these first nine verses. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Did you hear the redundancy? What is he consistently repeating through those verses? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is exalting Christ above all else. Paul comes out of the gate here in this letter by reminding them who they are and all they have in Christ. Actually, ten times in the first ten verses of this letter, he uses the name of Jesus in some form or fashion, emphasizing where their allegiance and where their attention should be as a church on Christ and on Christ alone. And just as a doctor diagnoses an illness in the body, Paul's going to pinpoint the problem in Corinth. Just three years after being established on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they were being shaped more by the culture than they were by the cross. This is one of the earliest churches, Christian churches, to be planted period, and just three years after they were planted, with the freshness of Jesus' footsteps still on the earth, the culture was infiltrating the church and having more of an impact on it than was the risen Christ and the cross. So this is nothing new. We still struggle with this, even more so possibly today. The church in Corinth, Paul had diagnosed, had become all about themselves. They had become all about what they wanted. They had become all about their own preferences, their own prerogatives, their wishes, their will, their way, individually. And so Paul reminds them here, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the body of Christ, guess what? It's not about you. Do we need that reminder today in this culture? In this consumer Christian culture? The church is not about you. 
The church doesn't, and some people don't want, the church doesn't exist for you. Whoa! The church exists from Him and for Him. It's not about your preference. It's not about your will. It's not about your way. It's about Jesus and exalting Him and lifting Him to the highest place. Not ourselves. And so Paul diagnoses this problem in Corinth. They were all about themselves. He says it's not about what you want, church. It's about Him. It's about humility. That's what the cross is all about. It's about setting yourself aside for the sake of others. Jesus said they'll know you, they'll know us as the church, by our love for one another. And that's the signal that Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to send. And the signal that he is encouraging us to send as a church. So he essentially diagnoses them with self-itis. Kind of all about them. They were me monsters. Me, 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 me. It's what I want. It's what matters most. Pride and preference had infected the body of Christ in Corinth. Subtle stuff, especially preference. The way I like it. The way I want it. That's what has birthed the consumer church movement in our culture today. I'm going to shop around till I find exactly what I want. I'm going to drive 40 miles from where I live to find exactly what I want instead of attending the local church where I live and doing life with the people I live with, my neighbors. It's all about preference. And Paul knew that this virus, if you will, had infected the body of Christ in Corinth. And, and like the coronavirus, it would be the Corinth virus. Paul knew if you don't get a handle on this thing, it will spread like wildfire and it will kill the church. And so he diagnoses this disease, self-itis, and he writes this letter, if you will, as a prescription to cure it. Let me ask you something. How hard is it for you, how hard is it for me, to set your preferences aside for the sake of somebody else? To really be willing to lay down what you think is the best way, what you prefer what you like most for the greater good, for the sake of unity, for the sake of peace, for the sake of the body. How hard is it for you to set your preferences aside? Our culture does a horrible job of this. If my preference does not prevail, then I don't like you. I'm not going to talk to you. We're not going to dialogue about it. I'm just going to put you in a corner and label you if I don't get my way and you don't agree with my way. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse by the day. 
How hard is it for you to set your preferences aside? Not set truth aside. Don't get that mixed up. There's a difference between truth and the authority of Scripture and the essentials of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, for the salvation that we step into that has nothing to do with what we have done but everything to do with what He has done. That's the essential. But then we got preferences in the midst of all that. Non-essentials. How hard is it for you to set those aside for the sake of the whole? That's what Paul is addressing here in Corinth. They individually wanted their way and demanded their individual preference. And it was causing division in the church. There's a thousand ways to skin a cat. Is your way always right? That kind of attitude creates distance and division in relationship. Not just in a church. That kind of attitude creates distance and division in a marriage, in a family, on the job. When your preferences have to prevail. And that's what Paul is calling out here in Corinth. A little background on Corinth. It's located in uh, what is now modern-day Greece, just west of Athens. Has anybody ever been to Corinth? Greek Isles and that, that area? No? Yeah, a um, couple people. Uh, it's on Kim and I's bucket list. We, we would love at some point to go to the Greek Isles and to, to, to go to this region of the world. But in Paul's day, it was a, a metropolitan city. I mean, it was a thriving city. It was the largest city in Greece, over 80,000 people in the city of Corinth. It was a commercial crossroads, a lot of trade, a lot of business coming through there, and it was a bastion for religious diversity because of that. There were so many people coming in and out from so many different places that there were a lot of beliefs on display in Corinth. It was a city uh, known for its sin. It's kind of, you know, kind of like Vegas. I mean, it, it, Corinth was, was steeped in immorality and every conceivable sin. Part of that was due to, to what was present there for, 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 for years and centuries. And that was the temple of Aphrodite was in the city of Corinth. And each morning, prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite, 1,000 temple prostitutes would descend into the city, and they would begin circling the city single file with the words, Follow me, written on the bottom of their sandals. And so, a lot of temptation literally surrounding the church in Corinth. And these young Christians were right in the middle of it, struggling with their environment. They had just come out of this environment, fully immersed in this environment, three years early. And now they were feeling the pressure to become part of it again. Sound familiar? More things change, the more they stay the same. It's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter. 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter. To one of the very first churches to exist. And every issue we will see in the next 12 weeks that he addresses 
is just as relevant today as it was then. The scripture is timely. The first issue that Paul addresses, again, is division in the church, in the body. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, verse 10, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. Paul's saying, it's not about me. I'm not coming here demanding my way, telling you what I think you should do. He says, I'm appealing to you in the name of Jesus. That all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. That sound impossible? Doesn't it? It is impossible without Him. And that you may be perfectly united. That doesn't mean get rid of your preferences. We all have preferences. That's part of human nature. We all have different ways that we like things. Some people like the music one way. Some people like the music another way. Some people like me to preach ten minutes. Some people like me to preach three minutes. (laughs) Nobody likes me to preach more than ten minutes. No. He says, so that there may be no divisions among you, so that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And that's something only the Spirit can do. And we're going to be talking about that next week. He says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household, these are folks, that, that uh, a house that lived in Corinth who had made their way to Ephesus. He says, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So the church was fighting. He says, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another one of you says, I follow Apollos. Apollos, uh, we learn in, in the book of Acts, was one of the most eloquent, one of the most gifted, one of the most dynamic preachers and speakers uh, of his day. And so he was in Corinth. And so some of you, some of you say you, you like me. Some of you say you, you like and follow Apollos. And, and others say that you follow Cephas, who is Peter. So they had heard Peter, who had come from Jerusalem at some point to speak. And still another, I follow Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul, he says, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And I'm thankful we no longer use those names. I was going to name Caleb Crispus, and Kim voted it down. (laughs) Sounds like a breakfast cereal kind of, doesn't it? So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. He says, and then Paul, he kind of goes rambling here. He says, yeah, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, he says, I just can't remember if I baptized anybody else. I mean, I love that. I love that as my memory continues to go. You know, I'm like, I can identify, I just, I don't know, maybe I baptized you, maybe I didn't. That's why we got these pictures on the wall downstairs. So every time I walk into my office, I look up and go, okay, I did baptize him, okay. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. He says, it's not about that, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom. And here's a transition, Paul says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And if this is about how well I can speak or how eloquent I can speak, 
It empties the cross of its power. Sometimes the better orator you are in the pulpit, the more you distract people from Christ. It becomes all about you. Division in the church. The Corinthians had started to pick favorites among the preachers. Thankfully, nobody does that today in our culture. They had their preferences. It's human nature. Corinth was known for, well before the church had come, it was known for great speakers. It was known for orators and debaters. The sophists and the philosophers would battle rhetorically in the town center and prizes would be given to the most eloquent, the one with the best argument. And so the Corinthians were accustomed to picking winners and losers based on style and rhetoric. And they brought this mindset into the church and we bring that mindset into the church today, whether we realize it or not. And it began to wreak havoc on the unity of the congregation. And like the Iowa caucus this past week, that was a train wreck if you kept up with that. The Corinthians began to separate themselves into groups behind their guy. Okay, That's what was going on in the church. I follow Paul. Paul's my guy. All right, you guys get over here in this corner. Okay, we'll count you all. Um, uh, Apollos, you, you guys get over here. If y'all prefer Apollos, y- y'all get over here. Peter, you get over here. And that's what was going on in the church at Corinth. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. You know, if Apollos isn't preaching on Sunday, I'm staying at the house. Do you hear me, church? Who is this about? What is this about? You're talking about body language. So your neighbor who doesn't know Christ sees your car in the driveway on Sunday morning. You're mowing the yard, whatever y'all do. Well, why y'all, y'all, y'all used to go to church? Why didn't you go to church today? Uh, my guy wasn't preaching. You're talking about micro-expressions. Wait a minute, is it about your guy? Why do you go to church? Do you go to church to hear your guy speak? Or do you go to church to worship the God of glory? Hear me. It's a problem. It's not about who's behind the pulpit. It's not about who has the most eloquent words. It's not about it always resonating with you. That's not at all what it's about. It's about Him and Him alone. The enemy has a way of turning that kind of preference into division in the church. I've been doing this almost 30 years. And he's up to nothing new. It takes the exact same path every time. I like that guy. I like that guy. And then that guy decides to go over here and take the ones that lined up with him. That's why there's so many stinking churches around. 
The enemy has a way of turning those preferences into divisions. And if we're not careful, it can divide us as well. Paul's point here is this. The church doesn't gather for the one who is speaking. The church gathers for the one who is speaking over us. Christ Jesus. Francis Chan tells a story about a guy leaving his church one Sunday who said, Pastor, I, I really didn't care for the worship today. It'd be like me shaking hands back here and Jeff's walking out and he says, you know, hey, Phil, I really didn't care for the worship today. And, I, you know, you get that sometimes. Or I really didn't care for you today. You know? um, I'm like, well, I didn't care for you yesterday. And the day before, no, I'm just kidding. So a guy leaves, he says, Pastor, I, I really didn't care for worship today. And uh, Chan looks at the guy and said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you anyway. <laughs> were we? It's so easy to forget why we're here. It's so easy to get lost in our preferences and our pettiness as if it were all about us. And so Paul's point here is this. He's like, be careful, church. Preferences turn into divisions when we lose sight of the cross. When we lose sight of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. When we forget why we're here. When we think this is more about inhaling than it is exhaling. When we think it's more about getting our needs met than it is giving glory to God and meeting the needs of others. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 16. He said, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if you're going to follow me, this is sort of the, 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 the litmus test of discipleship, the litmus test of becoming a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Always demand his preferences, his will, his what? No, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, Jesus says, for me, he'll find what life's all about. The Christian life is not about winning. It's not about getting our way. It's about losing. Say, whoa, that is not a good message in this world, Phil. It's about laying your way down, picking up your cross, and following Him into the life that God has for you. The cross of Christ is the most profound demonstration of humility ever witnessed by humanity. The cross is where we park our preferences and lay ourselves down for the sake of others. Is that not what Jesus did? We follow Jesus and that's exactly what he did. The cross is the place where pride and preference goes to die. And it's painful. It hurts. It's the last thing we want to do. 
Because we're wired to have our way, especially in this culture today. That's why Paul said, I preach Christ and Him crucified. Because that is where the power of God is. In the crucified Christ. In the crucified life. Preferences turn into divisions when we lose sight of the cross. Let me ask you something. Where do you need to humble yourself this morning? Where do I need to humble myself this morning? Where do I need to park my preference and cheer somebody else on, even if they don't do it your way? Where do you need to step out of your own feelings, your own fear, your own flesh, for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of something bigger than yourself? Man, maybe it's here at church. Maybe you've got to burn your saddle and you just need to let it go. You know, I'm so thankful. I mean, we've been doing this here at Tapestry for going on 16 years now. And we just haven't had a whole lot of that. And, and I've got friends in ministry that, that are j- just, oh, devastated by this kind of stuff. And the church just kind of wearing itself out with division. I'm just so thankful. And I continue to pray that that's the case for us moving forward. Well, maybe you need to lay down your preferences here. I don't know. Maybe you need to lay down your preferences in your marriage. Not always have to have your way. Not always have to be right. I can tell you from experience, that don't work. Maybe you need to do it on the job. Stop demanding your way. So, you know, I mean, everybody's going to work differently. Everybody's going to have a different way of approaching things. And if you just can't adapt and let go of some of that stuff, it will eat your lunch. Where do you need to lay it down? Where do you need to lay it at the foot of the cross for somebody else's sake? And our culture, again, has lost the capacity to do that. And we as the church need to lead the way. Even if that means looking foolish in this culture. And that's exactly where Paul goes beginning in verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the world around us, this whole deal just makes no sense. What do you mean I win by losing? What do you mean I find life by dying? What do you mean I find strength in my weakness? God turns everything the world believes upside down. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, believers, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligence. I will frustrate them. Where is the wise man, Paul says? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him. Hear that. Their Creator. The wisdom of the world stiff arms the Creator as if they didn't know Him. 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. They were looking for something else, not this kind of Savior. Greeks looked for wisdom because that's all they knew. But we preach Christ and Him crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called, before you came to Christ. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He turns it upside down. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one, why does he do all that? So that none of us can boast before him because it's all about him and it's not about us. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. He's the one that makes us right with God. Not what we do or the way we do it. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A little context here as I close. Corinth was a cultural melting pot, as I've said. And there were tons of former slaves in Corinth at this time in history. They were known as freedmen. So these are people who had been oppressed and under the hand of other people. And they had gathered in Corinth and they had made a life for, them, a life for themselves. Many had become wealthy. And that's who Paul, it's thought, is speaking of here. Many had become wealthy and they had become fiercely independent, which... If I were, if I'd have been a slave and I'd have found freedom, I'd be fiercely independent too because I'm not going back there. The church in Corinth was filled with these freedmen. And Paul is challenging them here, even after all that they'd been through, to surrender. Can you imagine their independence for the sake of the church? To become a slave again to righteousness. Humility is a hard thing. But it is the gateway, Paul is telling us, to God's power. Let me ask you something as we close. Where do you need to park your preference this morning? For the sake of somebody else. Maybe for the sake of the church. The world is watching the signals we send as the body of Christ. As the worship team returns to the stage, I want to leave you this morning. I want to read some words over you um, this morning that, boy, just fit perfectly here with what Paul's trying to convey. 
And they're the words in Philippians 2. It's known as the kenosis passage. Kenosis means empty in Greek. And, and it is the passage where Paul is talking about Jesus emptying himself on our behalf. And so what I'd like to do is just have you close your eyes, if you would. And this, this reading is going to serve uh, as a prayer and as just the power of God and the Scripture read over you today. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Just let this soak in and let God speak to you through it today. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, Amen.